Well, I am honored, privileged to be here. Excited, nervous. Uh, like Ben said, I, you know, this is a not every week opportunity for me. Um, but I, I am terribly, terribly excited, and uh, I'm just, I'm again grateful for the opportunity to come here and just preach and teach the Word of God um, that I love. Uh, so this morning, if you would bow your heads with me and join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we've gathered this morning under many different circumstances with joys and griefs and worries, big and small. For some, no doubt, we are here this morning out of obligation, out of guilt, out of necessity almost. While others of us have come with hearts eager and full of expectation, yet we know the work we need, the transformation of our hearts, our sanctification, is not something we can ever achieve by our own strength. Instead, it is a gift that you give. And as we are gathered here this morning, fill our hearts with the fact and the knowledge that in Christ, in Jesus, you now call us sons and daughters. And in Christ, we may call upon you as Father. Free us from distraction this morning. As we gather here together for the explicit purpose of worshiping you, relieve our minds of things left undone at work, or of chores left undone around our homes, or how the cults are doing in London, or what we're going to eat for lunch, or whatever else might be on our minds. God, that you would free us from distraction and that we would be able to focus on you. And lastly, I ask that you be with me in the teaching of your word, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. That you'd use me as an instrument of mercy in coming to those of us who are broken. And that you would use me as an instrument for humility to those of us who are in triumph. So that we would know in all things that you are a loving father who knows what we need long before we do. So I ask that our hearts don't seek our glory this morning, that we're not here to be seen by one another, but that we would behold your face, however dimly that might be on this side of glory. We ask and desire that you and you alone would be exalted in the teaching and preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. When Lauren Berger catches up with her friends these days, she often feels like she's engaging in competition more than conversation. Who was busiest? Were you so busy you missed dinner? Were you so busy you slept in the office? She joked recently. I laugh to myself because I've experienced a similar affliction on the East Coast. No longer are we content to catch up with friends on our dating situations and social lives. Instead, our conversations take shape over who's swamped, crazed, overloaded, or hasn't seen daylight in weeks. Oh, you slept in the office last Wednesday night? Never have time for lunch? You win. A full calendar seems to have replaced the sports car as the new status symbol. Being busy means you're important, needed, valued. Time isn't just money. It's the red Jaguar, the Birkin bag, and the private jet all rolled into one. Have no time? You've arrived. That is from an article published four years ago at Forbes.com. And while a lot can change and a lot has changed, in four years, its observation still rings true. Our culture is frenetic. Most of us are endlessly busy. I, myself, am endlessly busy. And if you aren't, you know someone. You absolutely know someone who is. It's always go, go, go. And it's probably even better to say going, going, going. Because there's not really a break. You're going here and you're going here. 
And I think part of that, a lot of that, is we are obsessed with our legacies. We want to make a difference. We realize that we have a limited amount of time on this earth, and we want to make an impact with the time we've been given. We want to be heroes and heroines. We want to change the world. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We will leave a legacy. And that's not my message this morning. My message is not, don't worry about your legacy. You will leave one. You are leaving one. And it's good to leave a good one. But we obsess ourselves over answering these questions like, what will people think of me when I'm gone? When I'm dead, how will I be remembered? And so we work really hard to provide answers to these questions that we want people to have. We want to be remembered as hardworking, as kind, as friendly, as strong, as hospitable, as smart, as generous, as loving, and again, good things. But amidst this hustle and bustle, it's easy to burn out. You have a perfect plan hatched in your head on how to build your legacy. And maybe, maybe the word legacy is a little frightening, and you aren't thinking 30 years ahead, or 15 years, or even 5 years. You're only thinking about this week. The current obstacle in your life, the hill that you have to climb tomorrow or today or, or Tuesday or whatever it might be. And, and you're wondering and planning for how you're going to achieve this and how it's going to fit into this portrait of yourself that you're crafting, this legacy that you're leaving. And you've got a terrific plan and everyone is going to think you're great. Or maybe in a truly godly, truly commendable humility you see your work in action as a service to God. And so you aren't serving yourself, but you're working to serve the Lord. And, and so you say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and this good thing is going to happen. But then life happens. And it punches you in the gut. And a wrench is thrown in all of your plans. And what you thought you saw so clearly before is now as clear as mud. When the unexpected happens... All of your efforts and all of your busyness are ground to dust. And for what? In these moments, and I know, I know as sure as I'm standing up here, that you've all experienced a moment like this. And don't you feel small and weak? Moments like this where the uncontrollable happens, and you realize that in this world and in this life that you work so hard to manage, you truly control very little, if anything at all. And you are small and weak. I am small and I am weak. And when we're worried about our legacies, that's the last thing most of us want to be remembered as. Nothing quite puts our weakness and our smallness and our lack of control and power on display like the unplanned. It has been said that sentences, not books, but sentences change people. Uh, by John Piper, if you're familiar with him, that's kind of a thing from him. Uh, and his point is that whole books are huge and they're hardly remembered except for the exceptional few of us that could somehow memorize, you know, word for word some book. And I know it's done. I know it's possible. Um, but for most of us, sentences and even paragraphs, they're small and they're bite sized. And so we can chew on them and we can keep them in our hearts and minds. And so this morning, I hope to give you a sentence or two, as you see by my two verse selection. Uh, that you'll be able to carry with you. It's a truth that you will find rest in when your plans have failed or life punches you in the gut and you feel your weakness. It's a truth that provides comfort in light of your smallness and your weakness. So turn with me this morning to Psalm 127. I'm not going to have slides up, so if you could 
Turn with me in your own Bible. Turn on your phones. The, uh, Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, that would be on page 355 um, there. Like I said, it's Psalm 127. And I'll give us a second to turn there. All right. Starting in verse 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I have one question in mind for us this morning as we study these two verses. And it might, you might have to bear with me a little bit, but my question is, do you trust that God cares for you? Now, I realize that no matter who you are or what you've done or where you're coming from, there's a really, really, really good chance that you've already heard this message. You might have even heard this message yesterday, this morning, and that's good. I can hardly imagine anyone in our society who hasn't come across this notion that God cares for him or God cares for her. Whether it's on Facebook or the radio or Oprah or a New York Times bestseller, the idea that God cares for you, for me, for us is pervasive. But it's also typically wrong. It's not that God doesn't care for you, but who we think God is and what we think his care looks like is probably wrong when we take it from the culture instead of the Bible. And if you're wondering how I've arrived here uh, from these two verses, that's okay. Um, It really appears that this psalm that's not behind me uh, says very little. Uh, That's not to suggest that it's little in meaning or significance, only that it's straightforward. It's direct and to the point. Uh, This particular psalm, the psalms are broken up into seven, I think, seven different types. And this particular psalm is labeled as a psalm of wisdom. You have psalms of lament. You have psalms of confidence. This is a psalm of wisdom. And so it's like the book of Proverbs, uh, just short general principles for living life well, living wisely. And the usefulness of a proverb comes from it being short and easily understood. Like saying a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, you don't need a 30-minute sermon to make sense of it. With Psalm 127, we find two, really just one, general principle. First, if you want to build something, make sure God is in it. And this doesn't necessarily mean building with a hammer and nail. The word house here, as it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, here and elsewhere, it means, uh, among other things, household or family. So while it does mean a physical building, a physical house, it can also refer to a household or a family. So if you want to do something, if you want to succeed in something, make sure God wants to do it too. Secondly, if you want to guard and protect something, make sure God watches over it. And we can see proofs for these principles in the Old Testament. In First Chronicles 22, we read how King Solomon, the son of David, was blessed by God in the building of the temple. God had also provided peace for the Israelites and Solomon. Uh, peace meaning they weren't at war, meaning they had time to do other things than defend themselves and arm themselves and, and battle. Um, so God gave them peace, again, in part through King David. King David was a great warrior, a great leader. But God gave Solomon peace to build the temple. 
And so in the records we have of King Solomon building the temple, we see how God blessed the building of his home. And when I say his home, I don't mean Solomon's home. Solomon also did build a very extravagant palace for himself and for one of his many, many wives. Um, But King Solomon built a house for the Lord. And it was to be a house for the Lord amongst the people of Israel. It was where God had chosen to dwell. Because up until the construction of the temple by Solomon, God had dwelt amongst his people in the tabernacle, which was a tent. And the tent was convenient for the wandering years of Israel. When they were going through the wilderness, they didn't have a place to really call home. But as they settled in the land of Jerusalem, David, not Solomon, but David, realized the foolishness of himself having a house, a permanent house, a permanent place to stay, and God only being in a tent. So David wanted to build a temple. But as we just said, as I just said, as I I mentioned, David didn't do it. Solomon did. And the reason is God said no. God wasn't going to be in it. And so we see here an example of our wisdom psalm playing out right before our eyes. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And David knew this, so he didn't waste his time. And Solomon knew this, so he confidently went forward under God's guidance and supervision. Now, on the other hand, we can look at someone like Saul, who disobeyed the Lord and faced the consequences. He went about building, not literally, but building, living in his own way, and God ultimately destroyed his household. Or we can look to another famous physical, actual building like the temple, the Tower of Babel. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 11, where the story of Babel is found, we're told that the people who are there building, they're building this tower committed to themselves, their own names and their own glory. And again, you can probably guess, God struck it down. So what has Psalm 127.1 and 2 taught us this far? Namely, that in this life, that which you wish to succeed, you must be certain to bring before the Lord for his blessing. But the truth of this wisdom does not make it any easier to bear. Do you want to succeed? I mean, I might as well ask if you have a pulse. Each of us will likely define success differently. We're all interested in different things and we want to succeed in different areas. But we all want it in whatever whatever we've given ourselves to. So all you have to do is apply the wisdom of this psalm to your life and voila, presto, right? If only it were so easy. Because we trust that God is sovereign and all-powerful. Now we're left to guess at which houses he wants us to build and which cities he wants us to, to defend. Is this our hope? Some type of divination, some attempt at understanding the mind of God. Isaiah tells us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. In Isaiah 55, 9, Isaiah writes, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And Paul tells us in Romans 11, uh, verse 33 and 34, um, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Now, I've not forgotten that my goal with this psalm is to comfort you in your smallness and your weakness. Are you comforted yet? Do you feel good about guessing at the plans of God? Because you know as well as I know that we are fraught with mistakes, which is part of the reason we work so hard and plan so much. 
We know we are prone to air, so we work hard to leave a legacy that's largely air-free by planning and practicing and good old-fashioned hard work. But this psalm, in this psalm, we're being told to join the work of the Lord, that we are to take our plans to God and hope he signs off on them because they were his idea first. And what happens when, not if, but when he says no? How are you going to know what to do then? We repeat Romans, which echoes Isaiah, and we ask, who has known the mind of the Lord? Psalm 127 really doesn't help us. It doesn't say, if God's not building it, go do this or go do that. It says, if God is building it, then you're doing all right. And if he's not, then you're out of luck. Everything you do, apart from God, will one day fail. And it will not, or it might not fail immediately, or even for years on end, but it will come to ruin. And that's at least in part the message that Psalm 127 is telling us right now. Psalm 127, 1 and 2 is really only served to highlight our weakness this morning. And if our only hope from this psalm is to devote all of our activities to God and hope that he likes them, that's not hope. There's no hope in that. Because again, life reminds us over and over and over again how small and weak we are. And we don't like to think about that. We don't like to admit that. Everything in our culture wants to tell us that you're great, you're strong, you're smart, you can do it. If you just believe in yourself, you can, ha- you can make it work. And the Bible and life will show us again and again that's not the case. But I will have done a horrible horrible job as a preacher this morning if all i say for the rest of my time is that you're small and you're weak good luck when you feel small and weak and powerless what grips your heart and mind is it that you must build a house for the lord is it that you must keep watch over his city is it that you need to get a grip be stronger be unaffected by trials and hardships never falter and dare i say be a hero It's exceedingly easy for our hearts and minds to be pulled in this direction. And the pressure we put on ourselves is too great for us to bear for long. How often we forget that Christ has come to make our yokes easy and our burdens light. So again, I ask the question, do you trust that God cares for you? In John 539 uh, and verse 40 as well. Jesus rebukes a group of Jews. And and if you want to turn there, by all means, do it. Check me. Make sure I'm not making this up. Uh, If you want to turn there, uh, I don't have a page for that one, actually. But it's John 539 and 40. And in that, uh, Jesus rebukes a group of Jews who have gathered, accusing him of blasphemy. Um, And so from this, we can know that they're devout men. People familiar with the Old Testament scriptures uh, because they took blasphemy seriously. Blasphemy being any false claim or slander or um, just anything false toward God, about God, uh, it, worshiping God would be considered blasphemy. And they took this seriously and they were accusing him of it. And so Jesus says to this group who, like I said, they knew their stuff. These were devoutly religious men. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. Like I mentioned, they had read the scriptures. They had sought out God's wisdom. And honestly, they were probably extremely familiar with this particular psalm. Um, In the context of John 5... 
Uh, it's one of the Jew, like one of the Israelite feasts is happening, and that's why they're all in Jerusalem. It says earlier that Jesus had went up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being a city built on a hill. And Jesus had went up there according to the rules given by God to gather. And so all these other men would have also been gathered there. And part of the tradition when you would uh, journey to Jerusalem would be to sing this collection of psalms, um, Psalm 121, that we read uh, for our communion, or uh, just earlier in the service, is part of this group. They're called uh, Songs of Ascent. Um, and so what they were were 15 psalms that, as they traveled to the city, they would sing these songs as a reminder of what God had done for them, of who they were and, and, and all that. And so all that's to say that these, these Jews in this situation were acutely aware of this psalm, and Jesus accuses them. Hey, this psalm, that, that psalm, that scripture that you read, it points to me. And they had missed the point. And so let us not miss the point this morning. There is wisdom in this psalm. Yes, commit your ways to the Lord and you will hopefully maybe prosper. It's not a guarantee, but it's, it's a good rule. But wisdom is not the point of the scriptures and is ultimately not the point of this psalm. Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh is the point of all Holy Scripture. And we need to see Jesus in this psalm for the truly good news. So we can be weak and we can be small. So let us turn to Christ. I'm going to read Psalm 127 again. If you've flipped away from it or closed it, uh, if you would join me again um, in turning there. And I would point out to you, and I conveniently skipped this uh, earlier when I read this, but... It ought to say there, before verse 1, a song of ascent of Solomon. And, and so that is kind of a label of telling you that this is one of those psalms that were sung on their way up. And that it was either written by Solomon or for Solomon, depending on how it's translated there. But I'm going to read it again in light of, of what we were just saying. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city... The watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Psalm 127, 1 and 2, is meant to serve as a reminder that you are small. It's a good word. It's a helpful truth. When you feel small and weak, the word of God confirms you that you're right where you should be. When you feel powerless, it's because you are powerless in the grand scheme of things. The Bible accurately diagnoses the human condition better than any other book or source, and Psalm 127 is no exception. But if Psalm 127 reminds us that we are weak and small, the Bible would also have us know that we are sinners. The Bible tells us over and over again that we are born in sin, that all men alike are sinners, and we know this to be true. G.K. Chesterton, who was a brilliant, one of my favorite, English writers and Christian apologist, from the late 19th and early 20th century, once referred to sin as a fact as practical as potatoes. He follows this by saying whether or not man could be washed in miraculous waters, there was no doubt at any rate that he wanted washing. His point is that sin is as obvious to us as something as potatoes. Sure, potatoes can be explained, you know, scientifically. There's how they grow, where they grow best, what they're actually composed of. But you don't need all this knowledge to just say, hey, they exist. You don't need all the technical details to finally say, aha, this, this is a potato. And, and the point is, we know sin exists. 
we can feel it. We can see it. We can experience it. And that rings true more today than probably ever before. One only needs to turn on their TV or look at Facebook for five seconds to realize this world is marred with tragedy and marred with sin. And one day, God is going to pour out his wrath on sinfulness. And he's going to purge it from his creation. And everything that's been made, everything that's been created in sin is going to be destroyed. There is anything separated from God. Because separation is the nature of sin. It's going to be destroyed. Your house and your city and your works and your legacy will return to the dust. They're all going to fail. Now, Psalm 127, as I mentioned in passing, was written by Solomon. It ought to say so in your Bible. Um, it, it should. You should be able to see it if you are looking there with me. And Solomon, as we've discussed, built the temple through God's provision. And this fulfilled a promise God made to David, Solomon's father. In 2 Samuel, if you would turn to 2 Samuel with me, in chapter 7, uh, starting in verse, kind of in the middle of verse 11, at the word moreover. Um, I have, if you're using one of the Bibles under the seat, it's page 179 for you. Starting at, uh, in verse 11 at the word moreover. He says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, if you're paying attention, you might notice that in Solomon, this promise that God gives here is partially fulfilled. Solomon did build a house, the temple, for the Lord, in the name of the Lord. But God doesn't do partial promises. And the fullness of God's promise would be brought about in another son of David, Jesus. And Jesus was a descendant of David, and he was the one true son of God. And in him, unlike the temple, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. It's Jesus' throne that has been established forever. God's promise to build David a house is being done in Christ still. Now we've seen that the result of sin is destruction and ultimately death. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians. Psalm 127.1 is a call for us to humble ourselves. It is a reminder that we are not as great, not as strong, not as mighty, not as smart, wise, or clever as we think we are and we try to be. It's a song of humility, and this is good news. For he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we have been reconciled with God. We have been unseparated with God. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has covered us with his righteousness. In Christ Jesus, 
we are all sons and daughters of God through faith. And we are found in him by faith and faith alone, not by works. It's by grace, freely given. It's freely given and it's a gift. And what is a gift if it's not free? A gift isn't a gift if you've earned it. That would be a reward. A gift is unmerited, unearned, freely given, no strings attached. And by grace, the Lord gives us the faith required to believe and be saved. To be found in him is to be joined with him. It is to become a member of his body, joined to his head. We are told so in 1 Corinthians 12. And it's as simple as turning from yourself and your own pursuits like those foolish builders at Babel. And trusting that Jesus Christ is God and that he's Savior and that he's Lord. And so the most important question to answer about your legacy is not what will people think of me when I'm dead and gone, but will I be counted righteous at the resurrection before God the judge? And in Christ, your greatest legacy is set in stone. It can never be erased. And so Jesus also promises a helper to those who trust in him, to those who are found in him. Through the giving of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 and 13 and 14 says that we've been sealed as a guarantee of our future inheritance. And we have the Spirit of God within us, empowering us. We have become the dwelling place for God on earth. We are the household of God that he himself is building and has established forever. So you have been guaranteed eternity by a God who now calls you a son or calls you a daughter now, we have spent all of this time, all of our time this morning on Psalm, really the first verse. Uh, and I didn't put that up there to, I don't, I don't know, make you think that I was somehow going to preach on, or not preach on one. So I don't know. I, I'm going to use it. And, and it's coming now, you know. Um, so let's just turn our attention to that second verse. Uh, there's a great word in that second verse. It says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil, for it gives to his beloved sleep. And so I ask again that question, do you trust that God cares for you? He does. God cares for you. God loves you. God loved us and sent his son for us to reconcile us to him. And what do we find here that God gives to his beloved sleep? He gives them rest. Some translations... It, uh, even suggest, and this is above me, I do not know ancient Hebrew, um, but some translations even suggest that the meaning here is God gives to his beloved in sleep rather than that he gives them sleep. But the meaning behind it is pretty much the same. God is your provider. God is your strength. God is your portion. Look to him in your work and he will give you rest. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And your work and your legacy are secure in him. When things go haywire, haywire and crazy and nothing goes as you planned it, and life punches you in the gut, be confident that your work is not in vain if you are in Christ. That trials in this life will come, and whether they are the result of your own sinfulness or not, God is using them to build up his house still to this day. And so it will be good for you to be rem remembered as small and weak if it points others to our great Savior. Paul says that he, he struggles with weakness, and he, if anyone is a struggle or struggles with weakness and it's Paul, 
I think that speaks volumes to what the rest of us ought to go through. But he says, God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. And so God gives us rest. And again, I want to kind of sit there for just a moment because it's important to realize that it doesn't say God gives us idleness. God gives us laziness. It's not a call to sit around and cross your fingers and hope that manna will fall from the sky. It can happen. It's happened. But that's not the word here. The word is to build. There are builders and there are watchmen and there are laborers. And God has called us to work. And like I said, this is written by Solomon or for Solomon. And it is a wisdom psalm. And the Proverbs, the book of wisdom, speaks volumes to laziness and idleness and does not have anything good to say about those at all. But know that in Christ, your work is not in vain. And what what does work in in Christ look like? Uh, I don't know if we have this lofty idea that the only work in Christ is to be a missionary or to stand on a stage and preach. But work in Christ is work that's done out of love and kindness and for the glory of God as opposed to your own name and for your own fame. And that you could rise to prominence and that people would remember you. Work in Christ is work done in True humility, not false humility, not, oh man, I really hope people notice how humble I am. But man, I am small and I am weak and I need God and I'm relying on God. And when we do that, we will find rest when we realize that this life isn't on our shoulders. I'm not sustaining the world. God has given me a very, and you, small parts to play. And that's okay because we serve a great God. I want to close with one last thing. It's First Corinthians 15. Um, and I've, I, I think, mentioned it. I actually directly quoted it earlier. But uh, I, I just thought it would be a good thing to close in here. Um, so it's First Corinthians 15, starting uh, in verse 54. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Would you bow your heads with me this morning and pray? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this church that you've given to us, God, that we've been called to be a part of a body, and that as part of this body, we have a small, small role to play. God, that it's not all riding on us, Lord, and that when good things happen, we rejoice, and we are thankful, God, and that we would look to you, but when when struggle comes, when trials come, that we would not look within ourselves, that we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. God, that the gospel says you've, you've given us power, Lord, that we are called to suffer in this life. It's, it's the realization that this life and this world is not all it's meant to be. But I pray that as we leave this place, that we would remember this sentence and the truth of this sentence. Uh, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, that we'd be brought in humility to your grace every every day in that in that reminder
thank you, Lord, again, for your church, for your love, for your goodness, for your mercy, for using simple men like me to preach your word. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.